This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. The title of this talk is My Words, My Suffering. And this is from Chapter 24 of the Diamond Sutra. Mahamadi. This is, this is who the Buddha is addressing. The Tathagatas do not teach a doctrine that is dependent upon letters. As to letters, their being or not being is not attainable. It is otherwise with thoughts and words that, is, that are never dependent upon letters. Again, Mahamati, anyone that discourses on a truth that is dependent upon thoughts and letters is a mere prattler because truth is beyond thoughts and letters. For this reason, it is declared in the, in the canonical text by myself and other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that not a letter or thought is uttered or answered by the Tathagata. For what reason? Because truths are not dependent upon letters. And then the Buddha goes on. Therefore, Mahamati, let the son or daughter of a good family take good heed not to get attached to words as being in perfect conformity with meaning. Because truth is not of the letter, not of the thought. Be not like the one who looks at the fingertip. When a person with their fingertip points out something to somebody, the fingertip must, may be taken wrongly for the thing pointed at. In like manner, Simple and ignorant people are unable even unto their death to abandon the idea that in the fingertip of words there is meaning itself and will not grasp ultimate reality because of their intent clinging to words, which are no more than the fingertip. Be not like one who, grasping their own fingertips, sees meaning there. You should rather energetically discipline yourself to get at the meaning itself. I picked this uh, section, and I edited it a little bit, I have to confess, because it's uh, in this section of the Diamond Sutra, the, the Buddha talks about letters, but I'm adding thoughts and letters, words and thoughts to it. And, you know, I kind of didn't realize why this section was on my mind so much until I kind of connected it with a short video that I had shown at the monastery a couple of weeks ago uh, during the karma workshops. And it's, uh, I may have mentioned it to some of you. It's called Being 97. And it's a wonderful video. It's 17 minutes old. You can find it on Vimeo. Vimeo. You can find it online, Being 97. Um, it's startling. And it's about a 97-year-old man um, who's in full possession of his faculties, but 97. Uh, and the film, which I think is done by his son, um, takes you through his day. And he's waking up um, slowly, moving slowly, as you might imagine, going to the bathroom, coming back, 
uh, an aide comes in and helps him get dressed, and he begins to eat his breakfast. And while he's doing that, um, the coverage is, he's speaking. Um, not in the reality, but there's an overlay of his, his commentary. And he's a famous philosopher. I, I didn't know his name, but I know he's a famous philosopher. And he's written many books. Uh, one of them is on dying. Uh, and he was a professor, well, the whole nine yards. Uh, obviously brilliant at 97. You know, there he is with his faculties. Um, and as he begins to go through his day and the camera follows him, he, he talks about all the books he's written and particularly about the one on death and how uh, he's very clear in his conclusions in this book on death and on dying in that there's nothing to be afraid of, of death or dying. Because, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. There is no one to be concerned about. And, and he lays it out philosophically. I'm laying it out in kind of a half-wise-ass manner. But um, he lays it out, you know, very structurally, philosophically, and he's very clear on it. And then he says, and he doesn't I'm not exactly quoting him. Now I'm 97, and I basically realize that all of that is bullshit. Now that I'm actually facing my own death, he knows he's going to die soon. He's 97. Where is he going to go? You know, um, he ain't going to be around when he's 107, right? So, uh, and he, he actually, I think he died the next year. Um, he says, none of that's true. I want to live. I want to live. Uh, and uh, I'm scared of dying. I'm very scared of dying. And a couple of things came up for me, which is no matter how long we live, we want to live more. You know, you know, if, if you want more at 97, you're going to want more at 197, probably. <laughs> um, so it's not a matter of length. Um, I remember the quote from Yasutani Roshi, our great, 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 great fan, grandfather in the Dharma, who, when he was elderly and still running around Japan teaching, um, as the quote goes in his raggedy old robes, which I can relate to because all the clothes I wear seem to turn into rags, but anyway... Um, he said, I'm old, I'm going to die soon, I don't want to die, but I'm okay with it. You know, words to that effect of, you know, which sounds right to me. Uh, That's how I feel. Um, So in the course of this film, at a certain point, he's taken out into the garden. And it's a beautiful spring day. And he's looking at the garden. And he's looking at the flowers. And he sees something. And he sees, he sees the moment. And he says, where has this been all my life? I've gone through, and he, he led a terrific life. Uh, great marriage, children, the whole, everything's perfect in a, in a sense in his presentation. Very successful professionally, not lacking materially. Um, everything was good. If you're going to live a life, great way to go through life. And he says, where has this been my whole life? Why have I not seen this? And then he goes on and he intellectualizes it and he talks, he places it in his position and moves on. It's just a, a short, very short, quick part of the film. And so that film stuck with me and it made a great impression on the others who saw it. The, the workshop was on karma and we spent the next two hours talking about that film and the karma of living a life 
and when our comic responsibility comes due. Uh, and there he is at the end of his life, <coughs> having lived a terrific life and being sorrowful about what he's missed. So what are we doing here? You know, I find myself in many of the talks I give, starting off with this question, you know, what, wh- why are we here? Why are you here? Uh, and it's, it's always fascinating to me to ask that question. I don't think it's a coincidence I ask it over and over again. Um, what's the point? You know, and I ask these questions to re-remind us that we're not just doing this so we can feel a bit better about ourselves or about our life. Uh, yes, that may happen out of practice, at least in some points. But there's probably more effective ways to feel good, Right? I mean, you know them all. You know how, how you can make yourself feel good, and you know the consequences of that. Uh, so this is spiritual practice. This place and what we do here is to bring forth our inherent mind of wholeness, our true being, and bring it forth so that we can truly live out of it, so we don't come to the end of our life and say, oh, I've missed it. It can take a while to get a sense of the forms, the mysteriously seeming incomprehensible liturgies, the specific ways that we do kinhin, uh, why we do what we do in zazen. You know, why why are we doing this? Uh, counting our breaths, uh, how we bow, how we hold our hands. Uh, how we respond to the cues from the bells and gongs and so on, why the robes, uh, why the funny aprons that some of us wear, <laughs> you know, why do we sit without moving in Zazen, why is that so emphasized, and so on and on. Each specific gesture has a purpose. And some of them we speak of, some of them we don't. You know, we invite you to see and learn by doing, nobody's going to prohibit you from asking and will respond, but there's a limitation to what you see. But the fact of, of it is, until you enter the practice as yours, as your practice, and give it your energy and your life, the details of what we do don't have much power. The, you know, we're doing them by rote, pretty much. We're imitating. And yet something happens as we can happen as we begin to do them. People come to the temple for the first time for many different reasons. Some are curious. Some just wander in, a thing to do on a Sunday morning. I'm always interested. People I'm actually most interested in, the people who come at the end of the service or at the end of beginning instruction run out the door, which four or five people did. (laughs) Um, And that's fine. That's that's all good. There's nothing bad about any response to this. but I'm always curious about that. You know, I, w- I would love to interview them. Um, not to, quote, fix them or to turn them in some way, just to know what's going on for them. Something going on up there? Okay. Someone asked me about why there's a hole in the wall. And I said, because a rat had eaten its way through yesterday. But that's not true. That was... <laughs> We made a hole in the wall, too, because there's a leak, and we're trying to find the leak, and we'll fix it. Anyway, 
So, um, as I said, some are curious, some wander in. Some folks are in so much pain or so sensitive to the suffering they're encountering in life that they really don't care about the details of what we're doing here. They're just pleading, please help me. They're that desperate. A lot of people who come here have read up on Zen. Um, it's not unusual uh, when we uh, ask people, so for example, for residency, when people apply for residency and we say, have you sat before? And they say, well, no, but I know a lot about it. I've read every book on it. Um, and then after they've been in residency for a week, I said, do the books help you? And they said, not a bit. <laughs> and for some of us, uh, our experience has to be carefully calibrated, carefully um, looked into and finally understood and placed its position in our mind before we feel safe enough to, to risk such a seemingly radical, different way of approaching uh, doing something. Um, and mixtures of all the above. And each of us is on our own journey. And each of our journeys, I hope we all and each deeply respect. I certainly do. Uh, I mean, well, the one thing I've learned is that each of us has to find our own way. And every journey is, is gold if we're on that journey. Um, and so we live through our mind stuff, our thoughts, our feelings, our ideas, our thinking about the future and considering the past. And we also judge ourselves out of our mind stuff, uh, often negatively. But even when we elevate ourselves and give us positive or proud feedback, um, usually there's a subtle way to gain for ourselves. Even when we're saying, I'm not judging. You know, have you ever experienced someone who says to you, I'm not judging, as it's very apparent they're judging? You know, I want to tell you something, I'm not judging you, but um, your breath stinks. <laughs> I'm making fun, but I think you get the point. I mean, really, our judgments have nothing to do with anything other than the subtle rewards for puffing ourselves up or putting ourselves down. Um, Either way to create a bubble around ourselves and keep our discomfort at bay. And all the ways we've learned to be, to habitually keep our mental discomfort at bay, to distract us in the short term, to take our attention away from this, this, all those ways create a, a life of distance, of disassociation of an energetic frenzy or an energetic boredom, perhaps, or anything in between, that pushes away any chance of us accessing the depths of ourself. You know, in the film that I mentioned, um, he used what he had, his intellect, to do a, a deep dive into any topic that philosophically he could write about. Um, and in effect, that's what he used, not to pay attention to the life he was living. In the, in the moment. I mean, he paid attention from other levels, obviously. But in that moment, just before he died, and I don't mean he died the next second, but shortly, weeks or months before he died, and he was in that garden, that was perhaps the wholest, most complete moment of his life. And it took him 97 years to appreciate that. And then he forgot it.
And then we encounter this practice. And what are we looking at in this practice? When we do Zazen, when we look closely at our mind, at anything for that matter, we begin to experience for ourselves that we're doing Zazen via thought. We're seeing our mind via thought. And we're seeing the instruction is to see that thought and to let it go and to come back to the awareness of the breath counting. And the only reason we have awareness of the breath counting is via thought about the breath counting, right? And the closer we look, the more it becomes apparent that what we think of as a fixed, existent thing is simply our thoughts about that thing. That's what's creating the reality we're living out of. And that thing we're speaking of, that thing we're looking at, we actually can't find. And if you think you can, then the challenge is, and I would invite you to take this up, is to find it. Find the thing beyond the thought of the thing, beyond the thoughts about it. And obviously the thoughts are limited. Whatever thought you have about it, you or anyone else can have another thought about it that's just as true, just as either factual or apparently real. So where is the actual thing? What is the thing? And, of course, the most basic thing we live out of and deal with is our sense of ourself as a thing. Whether reading words or thinking thoughts, we are, by definition of words and thoughts, at a distance from the very thing that the word or thoughts represent. We've set it up that way. We're at a distance. And we don't know how, really, to be so direct that we are that thing. Ourself. Or anything else. And it's built in. And yes, the words and thoughts are crucial, helpful, in being in this world. We can't be in this world without our knowledge, our science, our analysis, our judgments, our mind applied to problems. And yet there are some questions, some very important questions, that our thoughts and that our words cannot really help us with. I mean, they can help in a provisional way. It helps to read books. It helps to know about something. I... uh, I am an incompetent fool when it comes to cooking. There's not just a story I tell myself. Trust me on this. And I once read a book, How to Cook. It didn't help. There are just some things that don't go for each of us. And there are some questions that just don't go to our words and thoughts. And these are the kinds of questions that bring people here. You know, in this Buddhist practice, we speak of emptiness. Emptiness is simply this reality that is not what our thoughts and ideas can know. Reality. Not some idea of reality. Not something about it that our thoughts and ideas cannot know. When he was in the garden and looking at the garden as it is, a little something happened to him, a little slight opening happened to him that he saw. For a moment, it cleared. And then 
97 years of conditioning kicked in. And he placed it in a particular place. This is not what we think it is. This. Not what we thought. We think this is what we describe. And that does have a provisional, somewhat useful reality. Provisional reality. Very provisional. And to the extent that we forget that these words and thoughts that we read and think and assign to things is provisional, it's to the extent that we suffer, the extent that we feel alienation from ourself and from others, the extent that we hurt, whether we'll acknowledge that hurt or not. You know, it's interesting how deep an impression this has made for me. When I was a child, until I was about 14, I spent a lot of months, everybody's got their sad stories, but a lot of months locked in my room. And the one way I was allowed out was to go to the library. So I became a, a reader, an autodidact. Uh, and um, I read everything. And so the, I'm accustomed to do that. So that's very powerful and distracted me from my life as I was living it. But it also conditioned me. It's interesting when I look at the work that the Sangha is doing in the Beyond Fear of Differences, in the what is whiteness, and by implication, what is gender, and other what is And a lot of the work we do is structural, looking at the structural systems, particularly in racism, but also in the other places especially the invisible places. We're not doing this currently, but we'll get to it of gender and the structural aspects of that in our society that are pretty much invisible unless we look closely anyway. And so it's not difficult. It's really difficult to accept the possibilities of that for many of us. But once you do, it's not difficult to get some education, read some books, go to some workshops and go, holy shit, I never knew this. Or if I did, I never looked at it. Those are still the words and ideas. You're not yet free. You're not even beginning beyond a a modest level of information and knowledge to be free. And to offer that freedom. And what does it take to be free? That's not for me to tell you. When we take up this practice of Zazen, we're deconstructing the reality that we accept as obvious. Did you hear that statement? Is that a threatening statement to you? On one hand, I'd hope so. And on the other hand, I hope you want that, because that's your freedom from suffering. Probably both those things are true. I hope, at least, both those things are true. Nobody gets a free ride in this practice. When you face yourself, you face all of this world's conditioning embodied in you. And nobody is free of it, no matter what you know, no matter what the words are, no matter what the books you've read, no matter what the knowledge you have. And meanwhile, there's a context of your life, of how you're living it, 
and the patterns of it, which are pretty firmly entrenched in where your life is going. And if you're a certain age, like Tenfu or me, we're the same age, um, you know, you're not going to turn the rowboat in a different direction very easily. <laughs> you know, things are, have their own momentum. But you're not being asked to destroy your life. You're being asked to see your life, to really see your life, to see it in a way that you're not trapped by your thoughts and ideas about it. In taking these endlessly, seemingly permanent forms, self included, as true reality, we're living out of delusion. We're living out of our thoughts about things, not out of things. Can we see that everything is just a designation? Things have a kind of reality and they're being named and conceptualized, but actually are not present, not as that thing. Not to understand that our designations are designations is to not truly see. Mahamadi, the Tathagatas did not teach a doctrine that doctrine that is dependent on letters or thoughts and ideas. I'm adding that. So this is the Diamond Sutra. And there are a lot of levels here. Some of this is polemic. It's written as a... written to kind of boost the Zen school at a time when some of the major schools were simply to study the sutras. That was the practice. And we study the sutras too. The next tango is there's an emphasis on academic study and we'll study something and take them up. Maizumi Roshi talked about different ways of reading uh, Dharma and the last way he talked about, he said, reality reading. And he, he said something about it, but it was like, what did he say? Because reading from that perspective is no longer reading. It's the space between you reading it and the words have disappeared. That's not what the Buddha is talking about here. So we do study sutras. We do study the words of the Buddha. But it's not our primary practice. Our primary practice is the practice of intimacy. Of no matter what the circumstances of our life, to be as whole as we can with that. Appropriate to the circumstances. Because the primary practice here is the bodhisattva path. It's the path of you awakening and practicing and awakening. And in the midst of that practicing and awakening, offering and helping others to practice and awaken, appropriate to them and appropriate to you. The Buddha says, as to letters and ideas, their being or non-being is not attainable. That's a, that's a much more concise way of saying what I just said. There's nothing to say about letters or words and ideas. They don't fall into being or non-being. 
nor does anything else. So where does it fall? That's the point of this practice, to see that for yourself. But wherever it falls, it's not apart from you. And so, actually, everything is not attainable. From the realized perspective, there's nothing to attain. There's no one to attain it. That's your true human body, and there's nothing outside it. You know, it's interesting, when you look carefully within the words of, within the world of words and ideas, and when I realized this for myself, it, it both scared the shit out of me and amazed me. There isn't a single statement we can make that the opposite of that statement also is true. Have you ever thought about that? So we're talking here about levels of the game, right? Systems. That every time you make a single statement where this is fundamentally true, you're within a system, a reference system. Go outside that reference system, and the opposite is true. Think about that. I'm not going to justify it. Give it some thought. It says something about the statements we make being provisional. The assumptions of our life being provisional. Is my mother who died when I was too dead? Then how did she hand me 30 years later her only possession? This I've talked about this many times, but it's worth saying. 30 years, 28 years after she was dead, through a relative, her only remaining possession, which is the Bodhisattva of Compassion, a statue handed to me in my hand from my 28-year-old dead, 28-year-dead mother, Jewish, uneducated, probably never left Brooklyn, handing me this statue. And it goes on from there. Again, Mahamudi, anyone that discourses on a truth that is dependent on letters is a mere prattler because truth is beyond letters. For this reason, it is declared in the canonical text by myself and other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that not a letter or word is uttered or answered by the Tathagatas. And that's the Zen saying. I spoke of that a couple of weeks ago. In 35 years of teaching, the Buddha never uttered a single word. Of course, the whole 35 years he was teaching was talking. So how does that make sense? What was his speech? There are koans that ask us to look at this. It's a koan. How do you speak without using your mouth and lips? It's a koan you actually have to answer. How do, how do you do that? For what reason? Because, the Buddha said, truths are not dependent. They're dependent on your own direct personal experience, which we train ourselves not to experience. We train ourselves to kind of inject the thought idea in it. Truths are not dependent upon letters, thoughts, and ideas. Let this teaching enter you. This is our discursive mind we're speaking of. This is our sense of self, separate self that we're speaking of. See the implications of this in your life, how we think, what we do, how much of what we think is based on our ideas, and that not on the direct appreciation of reality, the direct appreciation. It's so hard to speak about this. It's so hard to to understand what directness is. 
if you wish to know what is real, what you truly are at base, how to enter into truly seeing, how to have freedom from the self created, here's the way. This is what the Diamond Sutra is pointing at. We begin to see the emptiness of all things. We begin to see the no things within the things. We begin to see the no speech within the speech. Or the speech within the no speech. We be- How do we do that? We see the thoughts arise. Thoughts, ideas, feelings, words. You know, the constant commentary. What does it mean to see them? To actually see them. You know, in the instruction of Zazen, it doesn't say, see the thought, let it go. And da, da, da. The th- if it does say that, it's incorrect. See the thought and see the thought. See it. Own it. It's yours. You're making that crap up as you're sitting there. You may have some insight into, you know, something in your life. But then let it go. Consciously. Let the thought go. Let the feelings go. And come back to the direct experience of your breath. You know, it doesn't sound so difficult. You know, take a breath and just experience the breath and nothing else. Take up the question, Mu, who am I? Just experience that and nothing else. Sounds simple. Just take up this moment of being and just experience that and nothing else. And the interesting thing is, as we practice that, we can let it go. And the only reason you can let it go is because it has no fixed existence. If it was real, you couldn't let it go. And as we do so, we're cultivating our own direct experience every time we let it go. And there has to be a willingness to do that. There's a risk there. There's a fear of not letting yourself do that. That needs to be honored. That's a thought, too. That fear is a thought, too. Oh, I can't do this. That's a thought. See that thought and let it go. So the wonder of this practice is there's no thought you can have that you can't see and let it go. You can't fail. But there has to be a willingness. And you may have to acknowledge your own suffering enough to do that. Yet if we're faithful to the effort, and if we trust the process even a bit, and practice with some consistency. The gap between our sense of self and our constant commentary begins to narrow. It's not linear. We do what it does according to our karma and our life that we've led now and our habits and all the stuff that gets poured into this body and mind that we are now. But eventually there'll be a space of no commentary just the breath of breathing. Maybe not even that. Do you know you're coming alive when you're doing zazen? Do you know you're cultivating the wisdom of stillness and the cultivation of silence? So that within that silence, when you speak, you speak truly. When you walk, you walk truly. When you move your lips, There's no one who's moving the lips. When you have thoughts and feelings, there's no one having those thoughts and feelings. Resting in stillness 
when you come forth in thought and activity? You're intimate with thought and activity. There's nothing but thought and activity. It's whole. Did you think you were supposed to get rid of thought? Or that if you're still within your mind and there is no thought, that that's how you're going to go the rest of your life? That probably will not happen. This is a process that doesn't lend itself to measurement. If you step outside yourself to calibrate your thought and actions, you're lost again in your self-prison. And you're not going to always want to do this. You're going to be a little boy saying, I don't want to. Or girl. Or some variation of that. (laughs) But the main point is, I don't want to. That little child inside ourselves saying, I don't want to. So that's there. And that deserves honor and respect and openness. And let it go. And if you call this practice of cultivation of stillness and silence, if you call it emptiness, you're missing that everything, even the word emptiness, is empty of inherent existence. So don't fall into that trap. Therefore, Mahamudi, let the son or daughter of a good family take good heed not to get attached to words, thoughts, ideas. And again, I'm adding thoughts and ideas as being in perfect conformity with meaning because truth is not of the letter. Don't bullshit yourself. Don't believe everything you think. It's useful provisionally. It's useful within many circumstances of your life. Don't get too attached to it. It's provisional. Truth is not of the letter, not of the thought. Be not like the one who looks at the fingertip. When a person with their fingertip points out something to somebody, the fingertip may be taken wrongly for the thing pointed at. You know, I'm thinking of politicians and how able and uh, talented they are at distracting us from what's important and how able and talented we are from distracting ourselves from what's important. What's important? This 97-year-old man at the end of his life has a clear sense of what's important. He doesn't regret his life from the perspective of having lived a good life, having loved and lived, having raised children in a way that was very fulfilling for him, having had a great career. And somehow he's left with, I've missed it. How did I miss this garden my whole life? The finger pointing to the moon, the thoughts and ideas about dying and living. In this manner, simple and ignorant people are unable, even unto their death, to abandon the idea that in the fingertip of words and ideas there is meaning itself and will not grasp ultimate reality because of their intent clinging to words which are no more than the fingertip. Be not like the one who, grasping their own fingertips, sees the meaning there. It's about me. You should rather energetically discipline yourself to get at the meaning itself. That's what you're doing here. You're energetically disciplining yourself. Of course, you're going to walk out the door, and who knows what will happen then. But while you're here, you have an opportunity to enter into that. This is going to have to be yours. 
you're going to be 97 or some equivalent to that. And you're going to look back if you're lucky enough to be able to have that opportunity to look back on your life. It's not too late to begin now. It's interesting, when I was in my mid-40s, my wife and I, Aho, uh, were living in Colorado. Where our son had just was um, entering high school. We both had very successful professional lives. And we looked at each other. We had been practicing Zen in the Zen Center in Denver, um, which at the time sometimes didn't have a teacher, occasionally did. And we looked at each other, and we said, if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to end up with our life as this. We'll have all of our material needs met. We'll be fine. We'll have a good life. We'll enjoy ourselves. Is this what we want as our life? And the answer was no. Now, part of being able to say that is we had a good life. And we were successful within our professions. So there was self-accomplishment, enough to trust ourselves in that way. That's important. That's really important. But the other part of that is the answer to that question was no. What did we want? What did we want? Part of the answer to that question is why I'm sitting here. And here I'm going to speak very personally, don't miss ever the fact that I'm sitting here because she's sitting there. I can't sit here without her sitting there. And I say that in the most personal and thankful sense. And I can't explain that to you. I won't. It's not your business in a sense. But you should know that that's true. So it has to be yours. That's just a personal example. Your example is yours. Your path is yours. It's not hard to relate and connect with the words and ideas of Buddhism, but it's challenging to actually do this practice, to stay with it amidst the ups and the downs of life, the barriers that sitting zazen puts before us, which is the barrier of ourself, which seems impenetrable, the justifications for not facing our own suffering and our own direct responsibility for it, the possibility being raised that we are responsible not just for our own lives, but for this entire catastrophe of this world. But the incredible freedom that we have is right here in our palm, the mudra of Zazen. The freedom to live in a way that is true to our heart, true to our whole being, not bound up in the ropes of ourself, and yet completely honoring ourself, respecting ourself, the specifics of ourself, and who we are, and what our karma is, and where we have arrived now. To take a breath that is all yours to understand that the suffering of you and I is empty of suffering and yet fully present as suffering. Those two sides, empty of suffering yet fully present as suffering. Please don't stick on either side. Bring that to life as your body and mind so you don't get stuck on one side. Just suffering, there's no way out of it. 
or there is no suffering. There's plenty of suffering. Now, what are you going to do about it? Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.